Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Ann and Lewis are speaking with Keith Stevenson, the first African-American in America to run a medical cannabis dispensary. Keith is the founder and CEO of Purple Heart Patient Center in Oakland, California, a dispensary he started 11 years ago, now serving 10,000 patients a month. At the Purple Heart Patient Center, Keith implemented lab testing so rigorous that it exceeds the standards of Oregon and Washington. He was appointed to the California Cannabis Commission Advisory Panel, where he advises the state on regulations protecting consumer health and safety. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our interview with Keith Stevenson. Hey, Anne. Hi, Lewis. Happy Friday. Oh, my God. Thank God. I, this has been a good week. Uh, but a long week, and the next two weeks are going to be insane. Um, we are going to be at the Benzinga Show in Toronto next week um, with a bunch of our our clients, and we're recording this on Friday, April twelfth. So uh, everyone, get you your will... taxes done. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, please. Um, but you know what's really exciting? You know what I'm so excited for, which has absolutely nothing to do with cannabis? I know, and I was just going to try to hum the theme music, and I, it left my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for Game not making Thrones! me do that. It's only been 18 months for Game of Thrones. So Anne has a, a Game of Thrones death pool. Yes. First of all, I didn't even watch it at all until this year, and... Steven and I binged hardcore. Like now, the question is: Do you watch it sober or after an edible or two? Um, uh, both. <laughs> both. I'll start watching it sober, then the edible will kick in. I wasn't, you know, popping an 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 edible at like ten in the morning on a, like the random Saturday where we watched. But yeah, at night, sure. That's it's perfect. But the other thing is that I think is so key is we watched it with subtitles and make fun of us, do whatever you want. We were able to follow it, I think, much more closely with subtitles than, I don't know. It would have been really not. hard to, for us to like get completely caught up if we didn't have that, I think. Well, you know, they, they have these things called books, too. You can actually read I them. I do want to read them. Have you read them? I have read them. They're great. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you, this is maybe the one instance where I think the TV show is as good as, if not better than the books. Hmm. Um, and I look at like the Red Wedding, for example. The Red Wedding was shocking in the book, but the the impact for me that it had visually was so much more visceral. It was amazing. It, it you know so. So let's. I want to go through some of my picks because you. Oh you know, my god! Oh yeah, uh, we'll do the easy things. So so you listed like everybody, like every major character, um, alive, alive now. going into season eight. Now that's not you know anything can happen on Game of Thrones. So these are the people who we know for a fact are alive. Yes. So I'm gonna very quickly go through whether I think they're gonna come out alive if they're going to die or they're going to die and become a white walker. 
Which was your categories, which I thought These, were pretty first cool. First of all, I did not make this up. We, we took this from someone else and we made it our own. Okay, well, I'm still giving you credit for it. So very quickly, Arya Stark, she survived. Why are you saying it that way? Arya Stark. Arya Stark. Arya Stark. Beric Dondarrion, dead. Not a White Walker, but dead. Bran, even though I can't stand him either in the TV show or in the books, he lives. Uh, let's see, Brienne of Tarth. Gotta go quicker. <laughs> All right, fine. Alive. Bronn, dead and a White Walker. Cersei dies, not a White Walker. Daenerys lives. Davos Seaworthy, he and his knuckle bones are going to make it through, but Euron Greyjoy, <laughs> he's going to die and become a White Walker. Gendry, he makes it. Gilly makes it. Gregor the Mountain, Clegane, that fucker dies and becomes a White Walker, and he kills Jaime Lannister. Well, all right. Was that the was that the qu- a question on there? No. Uh, no, I actually had him. Actually, you know what? He kills Grey Worm. Grey Worm dies, right? Jaime makes it, um, and maybe the one who kills Cersei. Um, Keep going, uh, quick, quick, quick. Jon Snow makes it. Jorah makes it. The Lady Missandei makes it. Varys makes it. Podrick makes it. Quiburn runs away and makes it. Samwell not only makes it, but I think he kills the Night King. Sandor the Hound Clegane dies fighting his brother, who is a White Walker. Um, Sansa makes it and becomes Lady, stays as Lady of Winterfell. Theron the Ballist dies. Um, Tormund Giantbane makes it. Tyrion makes it. And Yara Greyjoy makes it. Those are my picks. So there's three bonus questions. Is Daenerys pregnant? Yes. Who kills the Night King? Samwell Tarly. Who holds the Iron Throne at the end? Me. No, not you. Daenerys. Fine. So, so this had absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about. But you know what? It was still fun and it's relevant. And not everything is all cannabis all the time. Um, today's conversation, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, it's actually our second take with um, Keith Stevenson, the CEO and founder of Purple Heart, um, because the last time I forgot to tape it. So we had this amazing one-hour conversation with Keith. And at the end of it, I went, oh, man. So this time, we're going to remember to record. God, I hope so. <laughs> okay, now it's time to start our conversation with Keith Stevenson from the Purple Heart Patient Center in Oakland, California. Winter is coming. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to The Green Rush. I'm Ann Donahoe with Lewis Goldberg, and today we are speaking with Keith Stevenson, founder and CEO of Purple Heart Patient Center um, up in Oakland. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Um, Let's talk a little bit. You've been integral in really shaping the California cannabis market um, and have, have been in the industry for decades. Can you walk our listeners through a little bit of your story and your experience? Yes, I'd be happy to. First of all, thank you for allowing me to come onto the show. You guys have an awesome platform. You've had an incredible uh, group of people who have come before me. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity. It's our pleasure. <clears throat> so my, uh, my, my previous experience uh, in terms of shaping the industry started off in Oakland early on, and I'd say around 1995. 
<clears throat> excuse me, 1994-95, when I worked at the first um, dispensary in the city of Oakland. And from there, I had the opportunity to work various phone banks. And then when I was able to operate my own retail store, Purple Heart, it, uh, it allowed me the opportunity to work with uh, the city of Oakland. And I was appointed to a board uh, known as Measure Z. And Measure Z was the initial entity that dealt with the taxation and regulation for adult sales. So this was uh, outside of the medical cannabis uh, movement. And from there, we worked on Prop 19, which became uh, California's first foray into adult sales. It, it wasn't approved at the ballot, but Colorado picked up the same legislation that we started in Oakland. And that's how Colorado obtained that. Uh, that's how they passed adult sales legislation. Let me ask you a question. Why was Oakland the, the center of the entire cannabis movement early on? I mean, it wasn't L.A., it wasn't San Diego, it was Oakland, which is, you know, surprising. Why, what, why was it there? Well, I, this, first of all, I, I think we should give credit to Dennis Perron for starting the medical cannabis, cannabis movement in San Francisco initially, and then it, it matriculated over to Oakland. So what I do believe occurred was we had a compassionate city council and they understood early on that there were a lot of sick individuals and that cannabis was a, a great way to mitigate pain and just make their quality of life better. So from there, um, we also had just, you know, Maybe more important than the council, it was the group of individuals. Somehow we all clustered in Oakland. So when you guys were doing this at the beginning, did you realize how radical this was? Did you have any clue as to what you were building? Or was it, we just want patients to have access to medicine? Well, yeah, we absolutely, I absolutely realized how radical it was in the sense that there was the threat of federal intervention and, you know, just a, just with the negative association of, of cannabis usage. So when when that occurred, it was it was just, you know, it was it was an eye opening moment where you could actually, you know, try to make someone's life better and you can still end up going to jail for that. I mean, were you scared going to work every day like this could be the day? Absolutely. And I <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I I tend to think that many of us in the industry have PTSD. Huh. Well, I can I can recommend something for that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We I think we've all self medicated. So yeah, to to uh, echo what you were saying, it was a very unique situation. It was there were really no federal friends in the in the U.S. Congress or the U.S. Senate, and def definitely definitely not in the Oval Office. Did you ever get arrested? No, I didn't get arrested, but I came close. And I had a warehouse in Oakland that I was cultivating cannabis in, and someone had uh, assisted themselves without my permission into the facility. And when I got there... The they broke in and robbed you? Uh, yeah, it, 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 it occurred. And, uh, you know, when I got there... 
Oakland police officers asked me for my ID. I showed them that, you know, not, you know, here's my ID. I didn't have any warrants. I provided them my medical cannabis card and showed them my cultivation permit, and they let me go. Well, because you didn't do anything illegal. Absolutely. But, and I think what's really interesting now, so fast forward at this point, what, 20 years, and you are now appointed to the state of California's Cannabis Advisory Committee, which is under the Bureau of Cannabis Control. Um, And, you know, this is really the committee that's going to be, you know, advising the state and other licensing authorities on the development of regulations that help protect, you know, health and safety um, and reduce the illegal, uh, the illicit market for cannabis. So now that you're a part of this body, what are you going to be focusing on? Uh, One of the things I think we're going to focus on is this year is delivery. You know, we had a, we, on our recent uh, commission meeting, we, we spoke about delivery and social equity. So those are probably like the two issues at the top of the food chain. One of the things that I would like to focus on is taxes. We, we have an archaic tax system. The, the tax structure is really too high, and it doesn't provide an opportunity for businesses to make a profit and reinvest that profit into their businesses to scale and make more money for the state. I'd actually like to talk a little bit more uh, about the delivery side, too, because, um, you know, as Lewis mentioned, it's the Friday, uh, April 12th. And this week was kind of a big week in that um, I think it was 24 cities um, filed suit uh, to be able to effectively ban delivery in their towns. Um, Do you what's your what's your take on that? And um, how do, do you think it'll work? I, I do not think it would work. That's one of the issues we previously spoke on last semester uh, at the Cannabis Advisory Commission meeting. So, wait, wait, wait. Last last semester? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you get graded? I, can you please <laughs> give me my syllabus? I, <laughs> I, 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 I digress. Uh, our, last, our last meeting uh, in the fourth quarter, we actually spoke about that issue. And the, the issue hinges on the cities believe that they have a right to restrict access. Well, our position was that the state has clearly allowed deliveries in any, any city or county and that cities do not have a right to restrict the delivery of cannabis as they would be restricting commerce on public public uh, public roads I mean from a from a social justice perspective you know the vast majority of, of towns and cities in California do not allow for the the sale of cannabis but there are still millions of patients in these towns many of them who are homebound who don't have access to the medicine is that the the thesis behind the, the, the Cannabis Advisory Committee's position on, on pushing delivery, or is it more about the commerce side of it? It's, it's, more, it's more about the commerce side and, and what Proposition 64 entails. Proposition 64 is for every citizen of the state of California. It's not just for those that live in Alameda or San Francisco or Los Angeles County. And if an individual happens to live in Kings County or Fresno County or Orange County, these municipal governments do not have the right to, re- to 
relieve the citizens of, citizens of California's, California of their rights. And they would argue that it's local control, though, right? It's like, yeah, so the state said it, but, you know, Mendocino, bad choice. Um, I can't even think of a city that, that hasn't allowed it, but but that's because I'm in New Jersey and not in California. But Well, Hanford. Okay. The city of Hanford, which is the central central valley. Right. So so if I'm the mayor of Hanford and, and, and the state is telling me you have to allow this – is that not going to set up some sort of potential, I don't know, constitutional crisis? No. I, I think the best way to look at that is the city has the right not to license the business. However, the city does not have a right to restrict the commerce. Well, what also I found interesting on this is I looked at um, a couple of the cities that were included in the suit um, to see where they were on Prop 64. um, And a lot of them are overwhelmingly pro. They voted yes on Prop 64. So like Beverly Hills, for instance, is is part of this lawsuit. Yet 64 percent of of the people in the city of Beverly Hills voted yes on Prop 64. So clearly their their um, their community wants cannabis in some form legalized um but you know it seems that the city has said no to dispensaries um and now they're trying to further restrict access it just seems like it's going against the will of the people yes and i i would absolutely agree with you i think this is something that's going to play out over the next year and with uh all things that affect big business you you're you're definitely going to see um the the coalition of businesses that are in the delivery space band together and make sure that things like this don't don't impede their growth. So one of the other things you mentioned was taxes. Um, and there is still a robust, you know, illicit market in, in California in large part because of the, 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 the impact on taxes on price. How are you guys addressing that? Well, one of the things I, I, I think we have to acknowledge is that California had a very mature cannabis market and you know the illicit market is not going to go away overnight however the taxes absolutely are driving a percentage of sales to that illicit market the best way that I would think that the state could really deal with this and local municipalities because because as you know we have two different tax structures you have in some cities you have a local ordinance tax, and then you have the state tax. So individually and combined, those tax structures are too high. And when you make it so high at the cash register that the cannabis consumer is willing to uh, purchase illegal, untested, bad cannabis, you know, we have to make a choice. And my, my position is if we lower the taxes, to a sensible rate. More people purchase legalized cannabis, thus increasing legalized sales, and we have the opportunity to make more taxes by lowering the tax. That's a very, it's funny. Um, uh, that's the, the argument for trickle down economics, but it does make sense in this instance. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the issue is that who wants to stand before the, a measure that's going to lower taxes? 
you know, politicians don't, you know, I, I don't think that's an avid, advantageous position for them because they feel like, you know, there's always money needed. Most city governments are fisc fiscally mismanaged. The state can always use more money. However, when you think about it, that's just lower the taxes. That's the best thing possible. You create an even healthier economy in this, in this emerging market. You lower the taxes, businesses make more money, they're able to deploy more capital back into the business. The state makes more money because they're the gatekeeper and they make money regardless of which way the market moves. Makes sense. I mean, to me. that just makes sense, which is probably why politicians are having a hard time with it. Um, <laughs> going a bit further on the social justice side, we've talked before in this podcast about uh, the failed war on drugs. Um, and I mean, Lewis made a, a nod to, to Reagan and trickle down economics and, um, you know, Nancy Reagan's crusade. Um, but there have really been, you know, generations of, of people of color who have suffered at a disproportionate rate when it comes to cannabis related crimes. Um, a few months ago, California passed a law that would make it easier for people to clear their names in cannabis related convictions. Do you have a read on how that's being implemented or do you think it's still a little too early to understand the impact? Uh, I, well, the, the impact is absolutely uh, recognized immediately. And that means that those scars from the war on drugs can be removed. And, you know, one, you know, we don't quanti quantitatively, we don't know how many individuals have been affected by having cannabis uh, convictions on their record. However, we know that it, it has occurred. So any, any sort of immediate relief is great. Um, as far as the state and local cities um, rolling it out and helping individuals clear their name, you know, some, for, for me, what I realize is that most district attorneys are politicians. They just are, you know, they're just politicians with a badge. So it, it appears to me that when these uh, opportunities come up, it's coming up prior to an election. And, you know, it's, it's, it's positive press. So at the end of the day, I, I think it's great. Social justice is best for everyone served and the war on drugs has been a complete failure and it still is a complete failure. So any sort of movement, uh, moving the, the needle forward helps. So I got a, I got a two part question. The first is we, we really haven't talked about what purple heart is. Um, uh, so I would love for you to explain, you know, a little bit in more depth, what the, the purple heart patient center is, and then what are you doing through purple heart to deal with issues of social justice? Oh, that's a great question. Did you just say "oh shit" on my podcast? Oh, I no. Shit. Oh, I'm sorry. You said "oh." I thought you went "oh shit." That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe I did. Maybe I did. But... I don't think he did. <laughs> uh, you know what? Well, whatever. Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. So what? What I would say: Purple Heart is a is a world-renowned legacy cannabis retailer. We've now that we've moved forward into this adult recreational market we've we've kind of dropped the, the 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 patient center and because we're not just a, a a medical dispenser anymore we are a purely a cannabis retailer catering to both markets and as far as social justice we are uh, or social equity is that what you 
Well, no, let's uh, let's stay let's stay a little bit more on on Purple Heart for a second, right? Like, right? Like, we'll get to like what you're doing there, but but you know, how did you start it? You you, you know, there's not a lot of African Americans who own dispensaries anywhere, um, and you know, we we talk with um, Shana Macias who is just a, a dynamo out of D.C. Um, and she, you know, it was really cool. She explained the challenges that she had in starting it. Take us through your story, man. I, like, I want to know, like, wh- how did you do this? How, do, you know, how did you make Purple Heart? Okay, so Purple Heart's been around for 13 years, and uh, we're the longest operating cannabis retailer in the city. I, myself, I'm the first African-American in the nation to legally operate a licensed cannabis business. So uh, when I started out, I I had no idea that these things would occur. So my voyage to self-funding this endeavor started off in my basement, where I had a pretty large basement. I I had 20 lights in the basement. And, you know, I I perfected my craft. Cultivating cannabis is, is really one of my greatest loves. Now, was that in your house? Was that in your house? Yes, that was in my house. Now, I got to ask, were you living, were you, was this your house or was this your mom's house? And were you yelling up going, mom, I'm growing, leave me alone. Or was it like, no, it was, it was, it was, it was my house. It was my home. I actually bought the home because of the basement. And, you know, I, I was just, I think I was ahead of my time where initially I was cultivating in a warehouse that I communicated to you that was burglarize and you know i just felt like it'd be a whole lot easier if i could just walk downstairs and you know go into my little willy wonka factory so (laughs) you know did you have any oompa loompas i created a whole lot of oompa loompas yeah they were super they were super frosty very danky i think that should be a strain name oh my god you definitely have to make an oompa loompa strain yes i i think we're on to something so (laughs) So when I so when I designed this uh, grow room, I designed it, you know, in, in three parts. One room was for clones. One room was for mothers, and the larger part was for uh, flowering. And you know, I, I I just really went in and you know created an environment that was really about control. Uh, it was a controlled environment for plants to achieve their their most optimum genetics, you know, uh, uh, character, characteristics in this space. So, you know, from there, I just perfected it. And the more I, uh, perfected it, the, the better, uh, the better, the feedback was, was I was receiving. So subsequently I saw that the hydroponic shop was becoming a little bit more and more crowded. And at that point I decided to make the pivot and that pivot happened in 2004 when the city of Oakland first licensed uh, medical cannabis dispensaries. And while I was unable to get a permit on the first wave, I did get a permit on the second wave. And part of that was just me being tenacious and going to every city council meeting, being politically involved. And at the time, you know, this is a period where politicians were kind of keeping arm's length relationship with you like hey that's Keith Stevenson I know he wants to open up a dispensary and you know well let's just, let's just see so it, it just it, it was it was a it was a journey 
that I rec that I recognized in 1996 that that's what I wanted to do. I want to make I wanted to make the lives of patients better, because at the time that's all we dealt we dealt with, and me having juvenile arthritis, I had already had both hips replaced, oh. and I recognized exactly how cannabis was helping me deal with chronic pain. I mean, you know, I, I dealt with chronic pain since I was 13 years old. So at this point, I was just really happy. And it was, uh, it was something that my mom wasn't really on board with because being a person of color and her growing up in the South and seeing lynchings and black men tarred and feathered and drugged through the streets of Arkansas, you know, her, her, her position was, you know, why would you want to create a situation that you can't manage? However, what I felt at the time, I just felt an innate ability to gravitate towards this space. And it was, it was just, cannabis has always had a, a, a heavy pull on me. So when I had the opportunity to move forward, I, I did. And are you still um, growing your own or are you working with a collective? I guess, how do you, um, you're, you're not vertically integrated, right? No, at this point, I'm not vertically integrated. However, I definitely look forward to the vertical integration of the business. Uh, at this point, I think that if you can vertically integrate, you, you know, that, that says a lot about where you are, you know, just with the entire way that the state is going, there's just so much more regulation and accountability on hand that we've chosen to focus on, on just getting the, the, the retail operations in, in place and growing this, and then down the line backing into cultivation. And uh, one of the issues, well, one of the goals that I had worked on previously was I was working on acquiring the Pirelli Tire Factory in a city called Hanford, California, down in the Central Valley. And it was, the facility was 1.1 million square feet and, and an additional 26 acres. So that's what I really wanted to do the vertical integration at. That deal didn't happen. However, it was a great learning experience. And in my preparation for that, and just for over, from over the years, I've amassed 800 genetic strains of cannabis. Wait, what is, so what does that mean? Are they, uh, where do you, where does one keep them? <laughs> you keep them in a very cold and secure place. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like having. Like a vault, a seed vault. A seed vault. And it's like just knowing that how cultivators work, you know, whatever's the newest strain, they just crossed that with whatever was popular before and the genetics become bastardized. So some of the legacy strains are so hard to find because very few people held on to them. And over the years, what I've done, and you know, this is me holding on to genetics prior to founding Purple Heart. And just having these genetics is like my secret weapon. Like, okay, when it's time for me to vertically integrate, I have things that many people aren't going to have, won't be able to find because of just me being a, a, a seed hunter over the years. Oh my God. I think that's a great brand name too. Yes. Seed hunter is a great name. <laughs> yes. How did you come up with the name? How did you come up with the name purple heart? Oh, purple heart came about as at the time, granddaddy purple was the strain. I mean, it was what, what everyone wanted in Northern California. 
And I needed a way to infer that I had purple. And the city wanted us to also have medically medical cannabis associated names. So I took purple, added the heart because Oakland was the heart of, of finding granddaddy purple. And then I added patient centered to it so that I could have a more medical sounding name that wouldn't likely invite federal intervention. That moment where you were saying, look, I, I need to get licensed. What year was this? And how did you, how did you go through that process? You know, if you look at the process of applying in limited license states like New Jersey or Massachusetts, it's unbelievably onerous. It's crazy expensive. What was it like for you to, to go through that first licensure? It was, it was, it was quite a feat. I mean, there wasn't as nearly as much competition. However, one of the prerequisites is that they wanted you to have experience. And my position was, how can you expect me to have experience on something that you haven't licensed? Therefore, if I had experience, it would infer that I have, that I don't listen, that right. I don't follow the rules. It's like a, a yeah, like I, I plead the fifth. Exactly. So with that being said, I was in a, I was in a, position where I had to convince the city that I was capable of running an operation. However, <clears throat> excuse me, my experience was I worked at the first dispensary. <clears throat> so with that being said, I uh, really put myself in a position and I hyper-focused. Like all I wanted to do was open up a dispensary. So that meant staying up all night, writing emails, sending those emails out so that when the individuals who needed to read the emails, they would see that, wow, this person is sending emails out at two, three in the morning. They're up working. And then I would also drive through the streets of Oakland looking for a retail uh, location at night because it allowed me to, you know, just sit in the middle of, of very busy streets because there was no traffic and it would allow me to back up, look at the buildings and it just, it was much more conducive. So I, I, uh, my modus op uh, operandi was work at night and sleep in a day. You know, you've been doing this now for well more than a decade and, and almost two, right? Um, I think there is a belief that if you have a license to be in the cannabis industry, whether it's to to cultivate or to process or to to dispense, that you basically have a license to print money. It's hard to make money doing what you do, isn't it? Absolutely. I see it all the time. And, you know, having the years in the space or just being intimately acquainted with cannabis, you know, I've, I've probably been acquainted with cannabis for, you know, I'd say 37 years. And just being in. How old are you? I'm 50. I'll be 51 next month. Ah, oh. oh, good for you. I'm gonna be. I'll be 49 next week. Exactly. So I'm right behind you. I'm ca I'm catching up. Yeah, yeah. You still got a way to go, pal. You still <laughs> got a way to go. So um, I I'd say that you know years in the space allows you to see things that others just really don't see. And part of the things that I notice is that. When I would see these entities going into new states like Illinois and they're opening up these states and they have a first mover's advantage. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, why would you spend 40, 60, 20 million dollars building out a cultivation 
in a in a in a state that only has three to seven thousand patients. Like it like it made it made no sense. And I think that those are the mistakes that were made early on. You know, when you have a market that's not mature like California, and you 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 put forth so much capital, you're you know it's like being in a bad car loan. You're upside down. Now the other thing is that you look at the market in California, where everyone feels like I can come to California, I can grow. Or I'm already in California and I can cultivate. Well, the buried entry is a lot different. So you 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 have to have cannabis culture, you have to have capital, and you have to have business acumen. You need all three of those things to to make it. If you have two out of three, you're not going to make it. And I, I I see it all the time where the budget to create a cultivation or distributorship, they go so heavy in on the cost, on the initial cost. And they try to build something that they can scale into instead of creating a business that they can scale. I think you make a really interesting point about um, California being perceived as this as this mature market and maybe in, in the context of cannabis as it stands now, it is. but. At the end of the day, it's also still really an immature marketplace, um, you know, and, and black and gray markets and illicit markets. I forget what we're calling them now um, are still thriving. What are you seeing on the ground in Oakland? Are you seeing that this illicit market is shrinking um, or are you kind of seeing it like it's still got a really big presence in, in the lives of people in your community? I think it still has a presence. However, with the, you know, the price of, of cannabis has come down dramatically. So when you're talking like on the, on the illicit market, $1,500 tops for premium indoor cannabis, well, there's just not that much money to be made, you know, for those that may want to export it out of state. You know, everything is the, the, the price point per market excuse me, the price point per the illegal market is imploding while the price point for the, the legal market has increased. Those that are able to establish brands and, you know, create something different have a greater opportunity. And that's one of the things that I've shared with individuals that may, you know, still continue to operate in that illegal market. And I'm telling them, like, listen, not only is the not only is the sky falling, but the price is falling. Mm. And, if, and if you don't matriculate into this legal space right now, while all the operators are learning how to become compliant with the new regulations, how the state and local municipalities are learning to govern, and we're all trying to learn. No one's hit the bell curve yet. Right, but they're giving you an on-ramp. Like this is the opportunity, like, you know, in, in a couple of years, it's going to be too late and you're going to be thrown in jail. Yeah. And not only, yeah, thrown in jail or priced out, or you're just not going to have the business acumen yeah. to, to succeed. And, you know, when you're used to doing something in a manner that has no regulatory oversight, it's easy. Well, you know, you can't use the same products that you're using in the illegal market. In, the, in this 
regulated market. But you have, however, I tell them, you have an opportunity to establish yourself and build a brand. And if you do it now, you know, the sky's, sky's the limit. So before my next question, I just want to remind everybody, we're speaking with Keith Stevenson, CEO of the Purple Heart Patient Center in Oakland, California. Has California done enough to set up a system that takes care of the, you know, the, the people who have been most harmed by the, you know, the uneven and unfair in law enforcement around it? I, I believe they have. And, and that. And that's not to say that the work is done. That's to say that the acknowledgement that these systemic issues have occurred is great. The fact that the state has put capital and they, they allocated capital for the social equity um, uh, mm -hmm. operators goes a long way. So I think the state is slowly getting there. And for someone like me, I want to digress what you asked about social justice and social equity earlier. It, it helps for me to give operators a space on the shelf at Purple Heart. So these are the things that I'm going to start moving towards that I engage and interface with, with more operators that have come online so that they have the opportunity to have shelf space. That's one of the things I did previously in the, in the medical cannabis market where I broke a lot of brands. I brought them into the, brought them into the industry, gave them shelf space, and I want to continue to do it. And, and I, I realize that the position that I'm in, that I've been fortunate enough to, to, to create and be blessed with, that my work's not done. I, I, still have to, I still have to push the line, and I still have to uh, keep in mind that there are other that there are other individuals who are in the same space I was 13 years ago. And, you know, just I, 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 I want to be just as open to them as everyone else. So what's next for you? What's what's the vision for what what Purple Heart can be and, and how do we get there? The vision for Purple Heart is to open more retail locations for us to maintain our, 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 our credibility in the industry for us to be great operators that want to push the industry forward. I, I, I look forward to vertically integrating my business and playing a part in the, the, the delivery uh, market, also cultivation, and just really establishing many brands with the final being Purple Heart being a, a, a global brand where you can find Purple Heart products and brands and, and you know, various markets throughout the world. And for us to really witness our, our, the manifest of our destiny is to go from California to Massachusetts and to, you know, or actually, how about from the pineapple to the big apple? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's talk about what, so that's an, uh, an awesome vision. What is it? What's the next step? What does it take to get there? What, in terms of fundraising? I mean, you have uh, a captive audience of, of people who are interested in, um, not only the industry itself, but investing in it. Um, tell people how, what, what you're looking for. And, you know, we can definitely put in a link to your email, um, and kind of get conversations going. 
Absolutely. I appreciate that alley-oop, and I promise you I won't. Slam dunk it, baby. Just put it down. Put it in the hole. <laughs> put it in and the hole. One. And one. He's foul <laughs> on the play. So I appreciate that. What I figured that what we need, what's, re- what's required is that to attract that Silicon Valley pedigree talent, having those that are eager to come up in a startup company that's been around that has healthy bonds, and for us to attract capital to deploy. So first of all, it would be acquire capital so that I can go out and hire the C-suites that are experienced in every facet, whether they deal with retail uh, technology to assist in uh, the delivery space, distribution, uh, manufacturing, cultivation, all those things. And some of those, I, you know, on the cultivation side, I, I have those individuals that want to come on board and, and work with me. The, the next would be to really allocate the capital to the retail space. And just, you know, being in the industry, I, I've lost enough money, so I know where the money's at. That's the joy. I don't have, I wouldn't be losing anyone else's money. I've lost mine. I lost enough of mine to where I don't want to lose a penny. Now, we've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who've had no problem raising capital, right? They, they you know, they, they tell these stories that I just went around, had my investor deck, and boom, checks came flowing in. What has your experience been like? My, my experience has been, I created a, I created a deck and a, a plan for cultivation previously. So what I'm going to focus on now is creating a deck for the retail operations and reaching out or having, you know, platforms such as this where individuals can reach out to me. And, you know, I'm accessible at Keith, K-E-I-T-H at purpleheartpc.org and to let me know what's going on. And you know, there have been opportunities for me to access capital. I just wasn't quite sure of the individuals that I would be doing business with. So part of, you know, part of a capital raise is not just someone offering you money. Has to be smart money. Has to be smart money. And trustworthy. And trustworthy. It has to be someone that that you can agree to disagree and that you're in a position to uh to, that you're in a position to um, make sure that your ethos aligns. You know, it, it's it's difficult when you're. I, and I've seen it happen many times where you take on investors and you don't see eye to eye, and now you're in a position where, you know, I'm married to someone that I don't want to be with, and I don't know what to do. So part of part of me not having those. Um, Lessons in history, I think, work well for me. It, it, it provides me the opportunity to move forward with the, with the right group, the right team, and just knowing that not only am I receiving capital, but there's an intellectual value inside of this relationship as well. We've got just a, a couple more questions. You've been really generous with your time. Um, you know, Keith, you've been you've been in this industry for thirty years. Was there a moment in the nineties where you thought, I'm out. 
I, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be doing this anymore. And what was that? And then how did you turn that around and, and either rekindle or recapture that passion that, that you had? No, I, I, I've, I've never been in that position. And I think the, the, the part of it was I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it because I actually loved being around cannabis. I loved smoking cannabis. I loved growing cannabis. I loved just having cannabis in the house. There was nothing that I didn't like about cannabis. So my, my, my belief is when you love something and you love doing something, it's not work. It's a labor of love where, you know, others have come into the industry and, you know, they make a lot of money, then they get bored, they don't know what to do. Well, I'm, I'm just thankful that I've never dealt with that. And, you know, the opportunities that cannabis has afforded me are life-changing. They really are life-changing. And you continue to use it for, for um, arthritis, right? For rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, yeah, to some extent. It, it's, it's changed, you know, I, I may not... Uh, consume cannabis as much in terms of smoking or the vapor pen and I'm more uh, more akin to use it you know for the the CBD uh, benefits and the edibles as they are now dosed and you know you're not eating like a space cake if you're in Amsterdam so you know I, I know I can eat this one one um, piece this- of, of of a gummy bear or gummy care or you know, just a gummy, and I know it's five milligrams, and, you know, I'm not going to be in a position where I can't function. So, you know, cannabis, where we're at now, I I think it's just, it's it's an awesome space to be in. But you have to love what you do, because there are times that you're taxed, you know, you, you, you deal with personnel issues, you deal with financial issues, you have exorbitant taxes, you know, you, you see your, your, your top line, not where you would like for it to be. And you have to, you know, you've got to steady the course. You've got to hold on. You know, there, there are times I'm just like, oh, man, you've got so much on your plate. But I love what I do. And that keeps me going. I love that. Um, so at the end of every uh, episode, we ask um, our guests to tell us something that um, that's being underreported or that, um, you know, if there was a story that you wish would appear, um, you know, in, in the Los Angeles times or the San Francisco Chronicle or the, um, the Oakland, the Oakland, what? Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Well, it used to be the Oakland Tribune. However, let's, uh, let's say the wall street journal. We'll say the wall street journal. Yeah. So what's the story you want to read tomorrow in the wall street journal? Um, you know, I, I I would like to read a story about Keith Stevenson and you know, <laughs> and and the saga of a Purple Heart and you know I think it's a compelling story to tell. Me being the first African American to legally operate a licensed cannabis business, uh, being being in Oakland, coming from South Central LA, and so you know just operating in a, in a business space that's dominated by white males and having the experience of seeing the war on drugs firsthand, rising all the way from where I grew up and being a part of the California Advisory Cannabis Commission in the largest, you know, which is, which is dictating and regulating cannabis in the largest cannabis market 
globally. I think that's an incredible story. Me too. Me too. I'd read that. I would read that. And, you know, just just overall, you know, being a thought leader in the space. Not, you know, it's not just about me uh, being a person of color, but it's just the value that I know about cannabis, the industry, the history. There are just certain things that you can't replicate without the experience. So, you know, I, I just... Uh, I'm looking for the day where cannabis is is truly legal. We can have banking, we can have access to capital, and you know it's just it's just a phenomenal space. I, I often tell my friends in the industry, it was like, you know, yeah, you know, the individuals who are scaling their businesses now, those don't you know they can be the American online, the AOLs, they can be the Yahoos. I was like, remember. There was an Apple who came after them. There was an Amazon who came after them. And there was a Google who came after them. You know, the fact that others have moved forward is a great thing before us because they're creating a lane. And I would like for the industry to show more love. And, you know, with, you know it's great to be competitive. But let's not be competitive to the point where one feels like in order for their success to occur has to be at the detriment of someone else. That's just not the case. Uh, amen, my friend. Keith, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And not many have come on a show two times. <laughs> That's true. You, the problem is our audience is only going to get to hear the one time because I've screwed up and forgot to hit the record button the first time so this time we've got it recorded i appreciate it you're like my trainer he's like ah do it again do it again better yep. form better form yeah well i i i'd like to thank you lewis thank you Anne, for everything and i i look forward to keeping in touch with you as we do it with you keith we'll talk to you soon thanks our thanks to Keith Stevenson, founder and CEO of Purple Heart Patient Center in Oakland, California. Um, their website is purpleheartpc.org, and you can reach Keith at keith at purplepc.org. To chat with us, to send us email, send me hate mail, you can shoot us an email to greenrush at kcsa.com. On Twitter, you can follow us at the underscore greenrush, and on Instagram, the handle is at the Green Rush underscore podcast. And that, my friend, is one take Shay. One 